Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseval helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Mondays for your weekly tech news debate with Shiyan Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Wednesdays for interviews of regional changemakers covering both the highs and lows of leadership. Fridays for personal diary insights and listener questions and answers. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Hey, Valerie, really excited to have you on the show. We've had multiple episodes together, more on the personal side. And yet today, of course, on this wonderful Monday morning, we're discussing Vietnam, the market of Vietnam, the bull and bear case, the regional slash local view, because there's so many questions about Vietnam. Vietnam's the hottest star. So Valerie, please introduce yourself real quick. Morning, Jeremy. So happy to be back. A quick reintroduction about myself. I think most audience of Brave Southeast Asia podcast already kind of know about myself because I'm one of the earliest guests in the pod, but happy to be back. I'm Valerie, founding GP of Ansible Ventures, a pre-seed and seed fund dedicated to Vietnam, headquartered in Ho Chi Minh City. I announced the first close of the fund back in December last year. So really, we are really new, a new fund. We are proud to be one of the earliest venture capital investors in Vietnam and homegrown Fun from, from Vietnam. Yeah, before founding Ansible, uh, I worked for Ventura for the last three years. It's an Indonesian headquarter venture capital fund. During the three years at Ventura, I led and invested in 12 different companies and startups from Vietnam, mostly in the sector of consumer tech, fintech, health tech, and edtech. I, I started my career at Deloitte in the US, but decided that I want to spend the rest of my career building in, uh, in Vietnam. So yeah, happy to be back here again. And you also, after some discussions about how to launch a podcast, which we recorded, you launched Forward Vietnam, right? Which is one of the hottest Vietnam language podcasts. So if you speak Vietnamese, definitely check out her podcast later. If you don't speak Vietnamese, good luck. Thank you. Listen to this one, I guess. Yeah. I, I guess let's jump straight to it, right? So Vietnam has an economic miracle, right? So it's grown 5x in terms of GDP per capita. Foreign direct investment is the highest in ASEAN excluding Singapore. Of course, I, I pulled these facts from the wonderful Matthew McDonald. Check out his Substack, matthewmcdonald.substack.com. And he shares a little bit about this, a high-level overview. And I thought it was a very wonderful way to talk about Vietnam really seems to be the beneficiary of so many factors, right? Educated population, the links with China, 
but also to some extent the links with people reshoring away from China into Southeast Asia and a lot of the stability, right, in terms of economic and social stability over the past decades. So really kind of like a tremendous place. What do you think about that? How have you seen Vietnam change from your own eyes? Yeah, I always have the strongest conviction in Vietnam. And that's why I make the move, leaving everything to move back to Vietnam. As you mentioned, Vietnam economy is consistently one of the fastest growing economy in the world. So last year, 2022, Vietnam GDP grew 8.02%, which is the highest in the last 25 years of Vietnam development. If you look at even like inflation, we are going re- reversing with the world trend. So our inflation is actually really under control comparing to other countries in the world. And that's because during the two years of COVID, unlike all the government who have been printing money, Viet government actually did not do that and have really kind of reserved regulations and policy to monitor the economy. So that's why our, our, our inflation is really stable. And this year, we are aiming for about 4.5% inflation, which is really low, lower than a lot of countries in the world. And in terms of FDI, you mentioned, like, I think we might be one of the highest FDI destination in Southeast Asia. And actually, the FDI investor for Vietnam is actually Singapore. So another country in Southeast Asia. Yeah, so, so a lot of robust, that is a lot of talents. Vietnam, if you look at the innovation index, we are among the highest country with in the lower middle income country that is that is ranked that has the highest innovation index. So the highest country with the highest innovation index among the low middle income bucket is India and then followed by Vietnam. So Vietnam is always like leading in Southeast Asia in terms of like innovations, in terms of like producing more engineering, STEM kind of talent. So, so that's why, you know, my belief, my conviction in Vietnam is still stronger than ever. Yeah, I think education is a really interesting, I think, prerequisite, obviously, for technology as well, the value chain. And I think Vietnam honestly benefits from two interesting parts that I read. Of course, first of all, it has a strong links with East Asian culture, right? In terms of focus on educational outcomes like Korea, Japan, China. So some similarities there in terms of focus on parenting and making sure there's learning. And also, I think interestingly, I was reading about how a lot of socialist countries around the world have really focused on science and engineering, right? And math to focus on, right? Which is a very much a Russian, China kind of like focus, humanities and so, so forth. So interesting dividend, I guess, from all the engineering being trained. Um, and I think what's interesting when I think about that is that there's a hunger, I think, when I meet a lot of Vietnamese folks, right? I think engineers, they're smart, they're savvy, they code, and they're hungry, right? So how have you seen the next generation, Generation Z, I guess, for Vietnamese folks? How are they hungry or different from other folks that you've met? Yeah, so this part I'm so proud to, to mention. I'm so impressed with Vietnamese Gen Z. So ever since my fund announcement, I never post anything about I have a job application open or I'm looking for an intern or anything because honestly, I, I, I'm not looking to hire anybody right now. But I must receive like over 10 resumes from young Vietnamese students who are in the, in the first year or second year of their university. But the resume is so much more impressive than my own when I was their age. And they send me like a long cover letter and on why they're interested in entrepreneurship, why they want to intern at a venture capital fund, why Vietnam. So I, I, I'm happy to take call with all of them, but I'm, I, I might actually hire one just because they actually reach out to me and um, 
have been following up with me on so many levels, even send me their investment recommendation, even though I did not ask them to. So I'm really happy and really impressed with Vietnamese Gen Z. And that's why I spend so much more time with Gen Z. If you want to kind of explore, there are about 17 million students, like primary, secondary, high school in Vietnam every year, according to Ministry of Education. So that's about like one fifth of Vietnam population. And monthly tuition for these like, students is about $2 to $13, including the extra supplementary classes. So every year, Vietnam, Vietnamese students spend about $16 million for after-school tuition because of the East Asian culture that, that you mentioned. Like We are so hungry to learn, to get better, to change our life. And, and that's, that's why I invested in education and technology as well. But yeah, really proud of the Vietnamese Gen Z. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, you review our age because we keep talking about Gen Z. <laughs> we're like, <laughs> clearly, you're not Gen Z. I'm close anymore. to I'm close to Gen Z enough, but mentally, I'm technically like Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> I think recently they called me a geriatric millennial, and I was like an elderly millennial. I was like, oh no. I think what's interesting, of course, is I think also I think English fluency has really been improving actually. So I think Gen Z versus millennials in Vietnam, I think I really actually see that. I think not just, of course, improving in terms of literacy standards, but also I think more exposure to English language content. They're watching like Jason Calacanis <laughs> and All In podcast and a lot of different stuff. So it's kind of interesting to, um, I think, see them really kind of like work through that ladder, right? So I think what's interesting, like you said also earlier, is like, yeah, there's some similarity to Singapore, right? So Singapore is pushing a lot of foreign direct investment into Vietnam. Definitely see that. I think I met about three startups over the past two months who are like, yeah, basically looking to build out their engineering teams in Vietnam. And obviously they're not communicating in Vietnamese. They're going to communicate in English across the whole team. And obviously they're hiring, they're putting money, the training. So interesting kind of alliance. Also, like you said, there's some Singapore also loves education and tuition as well. So I think some interesting uh, parallels there. You know, I was recently met with a family office, right? And the US base and obviously thinking about moving money to Southeast Asia and obviously talking through the various geographies, right? So he was like, okay, Singapore, Switzerland plus New York for, for ASEAN. Easy, but very small. Okay. And it obviously talks about Indonesia, right? So 300 million people, America size. We'll get there eventually. What does the valuations look like? How should we think about it? And so, so forth. And then he was like, okay, I've heard about Vietnam and it looks like Vietnam is benefiting from decoupling and so, so forth. But what does the future hold for Vietnam, right? And I think there was a lot of question marks because I think in his head, he was very clear about Singapore, he was very clear about Indonesia in terms of the story, but very unclear about the future for Vietnam. So I think let's talk about that, like bull versus bear, we'll just see what we can do. So outside of one, I think one positive thing is, of course, the US and China, the decoupling of the supply chain, obviously, I think is bad for consumers everywhere around the world because things are going to get more expensive. But I think what's interesting is that Vietnam is becoming a bit of a neutral place. It feels like for manufacturing, uh, Americans are happy to buy from Vietnam. Vietnam is happy to host manufacturing and create more jobs, middle-class jobs. And lots of Chinese companies are moving to Vietnam to transfer talent, labor, take advantage of the labor cost arbitrage. So everybody benefits, right? It's like a China plus one strategy. But, you know, I think it's an interesting growth of the manufacturing sector. I guess, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I, I've been fundraising, right? And I fundraised a lot last year. So this kind of question, I'm not too foreign with. I get a lot of doubt. Some family office, especially in the US, is interested, but not 
comfortable enough to invest. But like, if you want to invest in Vietnam, you have to have a long-term belief and long-term commitment. This is not a market that you can invest and get money out in like three to five years. If you come into Vietnam and that's what kind of timeline that you are looking for, then Vietnam is not for you, unfortunately. Like, if you look at, let, let, let's say, for example, the legal framework for digital payment, the likes of Momo, VNPay, the current unicorn in the digital payment right now, it took them more than 10 years to legalize and lobby and work with State Bank of Vietnam to bring the framework for digital payment in action. It's going to take a long time. A lot of family office who doesn't have patient capital and really long-term belief in the growth of the country, then it's pretty hard for me to actually work with them, actually. A lot of the, the beneficial from the, the trade war, yes, is, is real. So Foxconn is, has already moved a lot of their manufacturing capability to Vietnam. I think airports, Apple Watch, and soon iPad are going to be manufactured in Vietnam. Not only that, like Samsung, LG, they're all moving to, to, to Vietnam. And I haven't really mentioned about the garments and textile industry. It's about $40 billion export industry in Vietnam. I think it's only lower than China garment industry. So all of this like manufacturing moving to Vietnam is actually improving Vietnamese people's life. And that's why there's an emergence of middle class, emergence of new consumer who their life have been changed entirely because of this like new jobs and new opportunities coming to their hometown. So it's, it's really insane how much our country has changed recently. But again, like if you don't have long-term view and patient capital, then Vietnam is probably, maybe we can find quick return elsewhere. Ooh, yeah. patient capital. Does that exist anymore? <laughs> it's an oxymoron, maybe. So you need at least three to five years, and you talk about how the public companies need at least 10 years, right, to legalize and lot for the exits. Uh, and I think that's really kind of like the other point of it. So that's about the bare point that we have here, right? It's like the investor flagged to me. It's like, oh, okay, you know, VNG Group was supposed to list on the US, but unfortunately, they stated publicly that they had to list in the Vietnamese stock exchange due to government requirements. And so there haven't been too many exits, I think, from the Vietnam ecosystem. And if they have been, they've been domestic. And if so, they've also kind of underperformed so far. So, and then also as a function of like government action, is it because of underperformance? It's hard to tell. So I think that's a question that people have, right? There's a bare point and a proof point. So how do you react to that? Yeah, so that's another common question that I have to answer to potential LPs in my fundraising journey. But exit in Vietnam most likely happens through M&A or trade sale rather than IPO because unfortunately we don't have exchange that allow loss-making company to be IPO yet. So Upcom is the only one that VNG was listed because of the government regulations. But even Upcom, to be listed in Upcom, you can only make loss in one year. So the next year you have to turn profitable. However, there's a lot of actions, lobbying being done by tech unicorns in Vietnam. So I'm happy to kind of join that force uh, if I can. My startups are, are still very early stage right now. But to list out a few exits in Vietnam, we can see FA Credit got acquired, also VP Bank also doing a deals with Sumitomo Misui Financial Group. So a lot of M&A transactions is in the financial service industry. And Japanese bank, they have the patient capital that a lot of U.S. 
investors don't have. And also there are several more M&A transactions in Vietnam, such as Foodie was acquired by Seagroup, but Startup.com.vn was acquired by Property Guru in Singapore, or Chợtot.com was acquired by, by Caruso Group, etc. So exit is there. You just have to be patient. I guess actively fight for it by helping the lobbying process, etc. instead of sitting there and complaining that actually Vietnam doesn't have any exit. So if you don't do anything, there's not, there's not going to be change. You have to do something. And that's why I, I launched my fund. Uh, I, I want to actively be a voice in the ecosystem and instead of just sitting there and complaining. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I think I get the same sense as well that because of those unclarity, it does mean that if you were to invest in Vietnam in technology, you're more likely to invest in early stage, right? Where you're at because you still can make good returns by true trade sale and M&A versus I think if you're trying to deploy larger checks or late stage capital in Vietnam, then there's a lot of question marks about more question marks than you would if you were kind of like building a company in say Indonesia, right? Or the Philippines. Obviously, I think we see a lot of Vietnamese companies increasingly domicile in Singapore. That's why I see a lot. So they travel, fly to Singapore and they sign out the various documents and then you have a Singapore entity, you have a Vietnamese entity. So I guess the one more positive side is it feels like Vietnamese folks are really pushing hard to attract more foreign direct investment, which has, I think, been not necessarily the same, right? I think in China, much and there's a lot of FDI slowed on both ends, right? Both on the entry point from the recipient but also from other folks putting it in. It feels like Vietnam is very open to foreign direct investment. It's trying to attract more and also vice versa. I think FDI is willing to come in, not necessarily again in terms of late stage tech capital, but perhaps in the form of engineering, hardware, factories, and so forth. And it's coming from both China and America. How do you see that changing in the future? Do you feel like that's going to continue? Yep, definitely. Our government wants to attract more FDI. We still developing countries, there's still a lot of sectors that need FDI, given how our economy last year saw a lot of crackdown in the real estate sectors. So, so really, our, our prime minister wants to increase credit growth, increase economy growth, and attract more FDI investors. And that's why our central bank just cut discount rate to 3.5%. Effectively, yesterday, we also reduced the lending rate in the interbank market to 6% and, and, and also lower the cap on, on lending interest rate for short-term loan. This is, again, going really reversing with the, with the world trend. So there's a lot of difference between U.S. and Vietnam right now, right? So, so U.S., like, the, the Fed keep increasing the rate, but Vietnam government is actually trying our best to support economic growth and controlling inflation at the same time, even though the World Bank adjusted GDP growth forecast for Vietnam this year. So initially, their forecast was about like 8%, but then he adjusted the economic GDP growth to 6.3% because of the inflation. I'm pretty positive, cautiously positive about the rise of FDI to Vietnam in, in the following years. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see, again, the FDI come from both sides, right? It comes from both China, comes from Asia, and comes from America. So I think it really looks like it's coming from everywhere, right? Because normally, I think, in other places, it's kind of like a push and pull, right? So one is leaving, one is coming in, right? So I think it's an interesting dynamic. I think for one of the big complaints I always remember is like when Singapore's absorbing a lot of FDI, there's eventually a kind of like cultural pushback, right, by society saying like, okay, there's too much money coming in from other people, 
were frustrated because, I mean, this doesn't just show up as hardware in the factory, right? It shows up in cars or like rich people walking around. So is there going to be like a societal pushback or do you, how does that work out from your perspective? Yeah. I don't think so. Singapore is already like a developed country, developed economy, whereas Vietnam, we are still trying to improve our GDP per capita. We are still classified at frontier market. So we want to move to that emerging market status. Yeah, so I, I don't think it's the same sentiment with Singapore. Yeah, I mean, that's great to hear. And I think it's been surprising. I always hear about how a lot of Americans are always surprised that they feel like they're welcome right now, even though obviously American Vietnam history has not been peaceful, I guess. That's a nice way of saying it. But it feels like memories are a bit shorter. I mean, is there, I guess, is there, I think some people ask like, hey, am I going to be welcome in America? I guess, why don't you answer that question? Am I as an American welcome in Vietnam, I guess? Oh, more than welcome. So... Vietnam, if you look at like the pop culture, we're actually more leaning toward like American culture. But if you look at politics, we are more leaning toward China. So because we are such a small country, want to be independent, we have to stay kind of neutral, right? Like I think as a Singaporean, you understand it really well. So, and, and, the, and the war has been... It's, it's such a long-term past already. We normalize trading, we normalize kind of exchange between the two countries a long time ago. So, and I think the largest export partner for Vietnam right now is indeed the U.S. So very important trade partner for Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I've got to swim back to the bear side. So Asia Partners obviously released a report in January, right? Again, 300 30 plus page report. And I think they had a really great set of slides that we didn't cover in a previous podcast. So please check it out if you haven't at www.bravesea.com. But I think basically what it did was it did a, a map between on the y-axis was stock market performance. So like how is that growing, right? And then on the x-axis, it shows GDP growth, right? And effectively, right? And so what they were trying to point out was like, hey, in general, like as a country grows, the economic growth can be fully captured by shareholders, right? So imagine this theoretical line going from bottom left to top right, right? And there are some companies where countries where they have poor economic growth, but some markets doing really well. So that means it's kind of decoupled from actual growth. But what was interesting is share was they saying like, hey, there's a bunch of countries in around the world where they have strong economic growth, but a limited amount of that growth is actually being captured by shareholders, right? And so the countries you mentioned was like China, Vietnam, and more recently, Indonesia and Singapore have started to kind of like approach that as well. But I think China and Vietnam in terms of like the biggest, I think, gap, right, from that theoretical line has really been interesting. And of course, Asia Partners kind of like at a high level talks about how does because of similarities on the role of capital and how it should be divided. So I thought it was interesting conversation right because then what they are theorizing is like what does that mean for the future it doesn't not to make conclusions i'm looking forward to next year's report so i hope you hear that nick nash so but i'm just kind of curious here about how you think about that yeah yeah i think it's um interesting point to mention so vn index is like the worst underperforming uh, stock market if you compare the average of like its regional peer stock market. So if you compare to like Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, Singapore, VN index is like the worst. Even though our economy is developing much faster and much better than other countries, the PE multiple for Vietnam is like the cheapest right now. So if you look at like the 2023 
PE forward multiple. It's about eight to nine X, which is like 40% lower than PE forward multiple of all the neighboring country in um, ASEAN. What did they say? I think, uh, and, and also our banking system uh, has faced with a lot of like liquidity issue last year. I, I, I think that's also a reason why it was like that underperforming. But fundamentally, because I think the stock market has not seen a lot of participation from retail investors, but rather very concentrated in a few kind of um, manipulators uh, in, in big wells. And that's why the VN index doesn't, like, it doesn't justify with our actual, no, like, normal GDP growth. So, and, and also, if you look at, like, regulations for our financial market, it's still a bit underdeveloped. So, you know, our bond regulations is still going through a lot of adjustment, especially with the real estate bonds last year. Even, like, regulation in terms of, like, allowing loss-making company to be IBO. I want to iterate the point that Vietnam requires long-term capital, patient capital, long-term horizon, long-term view, because we are still, you know, trying to improving ourselves, making the, the financial market more mature. That's my main point about regarding the VN index. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's the dissonance, right? Which is like Vietnam is growing like crazy on GDP per capita and GDP, and then stock markets is like bloop, 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 right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's controlled by too many well investors and not who trade based on insider information and not fundamental analysis. So we need more retail investor. We need more like I guess fundamental investor joining the the. The VN index. So this morning, full bond ETF officially investing in Vietnam stock market. So things like this will come slow, step by step. Uh, and that's why you need to be patient with Vietnam. So what's been interesting is that you mentioned about obviously manipulators and about obviously there's a banking liquidity crisis. And I think since then, I think it's really triggered a whole bunch of cleanup and anti-corruption work, right, by the government. So I think there's a lot of like financial system accompanying reform that's happening. So what do you think about that? Do you feel like that's working out? Yeah, another major frequent question that I get from LP. So again, like, as I mentioned before, we get a lot of learning and inspirations from Chinese politics, right? So China has also the consolidation of power and also the anti-corruption campaign was done were done in the last eight years, right? Vietnam also going through the anti-corruption campaign, but it was done a bit in a shorter timeline. So things might seem a bit overwhelming for a lot of foreign investors, especially U.S. investors who are not as familiar with Asian politics. Our, our anti-corruption campaign, I think, was done in the last two years. But I think this is a change for good, the change for better. But they still want to attract more FDI for the country and still want the economy of the country to grow, improve our, you know, Vietnamese people life and move up our economy. Yeah. I think the crux of it is, I think anti-corruption is great, right? I mean, corruption is bad. Nobody in the system benefits from corruption, right? And rent-seeking behavior, especially when you talk about technology startups that are looking to create customer value, try to climb up the value chain and be able to serve customers that are not being served by incumbents, right? So I think... 
Less corruption is great for the technology sector, always, consistently. That being said, of course, like you said, it's Asian politics. And I think people have forgotten that Singapore has had a very strong anti-corruption drives, multiple drives over the decades. And I think the reason why Singapore is trusted as a FDI destination is because of that perception, right, of a strong anti-corruption requirements, but also a strong anti-corruption culture, right? So I think that's the interesting part is obviously it's not just one drive, it's like multiple campaigns. So it's always a painful transition. But of course, I think people are always concerned if anti-corruption drives drive more corruption. That's what people are concerned about, right? You know, at the end of the day. As we look a little bit further down the road, what would you think are the most important changes or proof points that Vietnam as a market needs to demonstrate in order to attract technology investments and support? Yeah, I think the, the most important factor is the openness and friendliness from government to support the young. We are not nascent anymore, but like you're still young, the young startup ecosystem. So we need more sandbox regulatory framework and encouragement from State Bank of Vietnam to allow, you know, startups to experiment with new technology, whether it be, you know, open banking, digital lending, etc. So I think I want to always start with fintech because fintech startup Vietnam right now are being led by hustlers, pure hustlers. They don't know if, you know, digital bank, if open banking, if digital lending will be legal. I mean, but they don't want to wait for State Bank of Vietnam to actually like allow them. I mean, have a proper framework, right? They still building anyway. So this is the exact story of like Momo 15 years ago. So, so the chairman and CEO of Momo is one of my really highly respected mentor. He literally start Momo with a PC in his apartment like this, like apartment like this, because he believed in the future of mobile payment. So mobile economy. Uh, he shared with me that when he did the MBA in Chicago booth, his professor advised him that if you want to build something for the future, for the next 10 years, mobile is the future. Um, so that's why he moved back to Vietnam. Also left a really cushy, high-paying job in the U.S., moved back to Vietnam, start Momo in this tiny apartment, and lobby and, I guess, really work with State Bank of Vietnam to implement a legal framework for digital payment. And it took more than 10 years. I think 15 years. So a lot of other startups, whether it's like Kirk, Timor, other banking, um, funding society who have expanded to Vietnam, other like lending, digital lending startups who have expanded to Vietnam that are allowing the SMEs to thrive in Vietnam right now. They are purely run by hustlers. There's no support or open sandbox from State Bank of Vietnam right now, but they are still doing it anyway. So I just wish that we have a bit more clear guidance and clear support from the from the government. Yeah, there was, I think, state action, right? By the finance regulator asking all the various trading apps and robot advisors, right? To seek licensing, yep. which was like a systematic, I think, crisis across simultaneously across all the various Y Combinator bags slash, you know, local slash regional apps that were servicing Vietnamese uh, customers as well. Um, and it was, problem was like, it was also a pretty short deadline, right? <laughs> to, yeah. To, that was like a very weird moment, I think, for so many folks. So I guess 
For me, I think on my end, I think the biggest thing that Vietnam needs to show is um, consistency, right? So I think all the measures that you just mentioned, all the trends are all, I mean, in every market that you said, there's good things, there's bad things, right? Even if you look at US as a market, there's good things, there's bad things. So I think people have to make the individual decisions. But I think the part that factors investors is unpredictability. <laughs> so you're predictably good on these things and predictably bad on these things. Everybody's like, okay, I got a handle on this, right? But to make investments in technology where your time horizon is effectively on average 10 years, maybe 15 years, it requires all these LPs to suddenly become economic slash social historian slash forecasters reading Ray Dalio's book, right? <laughs> so, because they're like, wait, you know, like, you know, and I think that's the tricky part, right? I think consistency is the part that, you know, just maybe 10 more years of Vietnam being Vietnam is what I think is what's needed. Yeah. Yep. Again, um, more of the, st of the story is patient capital. Yeah. Oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> Capital only wants returns, but you're right. You know, I think capital can be patient in some scenarios, especially when the returns are over a longer period of time and your time horizon, right? And I think we saw with the Asian financial crisis, there was a lot of inpatient capital moved in and out really quickly and was not a right form of capital for the region. So when you think about patient capital, obviously there's something that you said four or five times now. What's your hopes for, for patient capital? Yeah, I guess definitely my hope is seeing more talents returning to Vietnam. I'm, I'm also building a, a career opportunity in Vietnam group, mostly young professional overseas. So we actually have really many talented people. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm so impressed with Vietnamese Gen Z. But they all choose to start their career a developed country right now. So Singapore, US, Europe. So I have to spend a lot of time, you know, consulting them and giving them advice on how to best moving back to Vietnam and navigating the differences here. That's why I'm passionate about. Want to build a community, want to give out the best education content, and that's why I do the Forward Vietnam podcast in Vietnamese to invite them and to attract them back to Vietnam. So, so really showing my, my conviction and building up their conviction as well to the country so that they can move back home and making an impact at home and, and building up Vietnam. I think that's the most important element right now. Yeah, I think Asia Partners and then later January Capital talk about Vietnamese sea turtles, right? As the trend to watch for 2023. Uh, a sea turtle is someone who is, came from, again, a Chinese term, a hai kui, which means that, you know, they left for distant shores and then they came back, right? So, so they talk about Vietnam sea turtles. So for all the Vietnam diaspora who's listening, you know, wherever they are, what advice do you have for them as they evaluate whether to come back to Vietnam? and how to come back to Vietnam. I think I repeat this too many times, but again, having long-term horizon and long-term commitment and adjust your expectation. Like you cannot move back to Vietnam and ask for salary that the same with your US salary. That doesn't happen. Really just move back, see how life's here, how, how hardworking Vietnamese people are. Don't just spend time in like Ho Chi Minh City or Hanoi. Like go to tier three, tier two cities and see how life are there. Like, See how ordinary Vietnamese are, you know, working, are living, how hungry they are. And again, have long-term commitment. Don't chase for high salary at the beginning. If you really come in with a passion, with a heart, with a belief and conviction, it will pay off. 
Awesome. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Valor, for sharing all your thoughts. I think the three big takeaways I got, of course, was the deep dive on Vietnam from both your local slash GP slash emerging fund manager slash proud citizen perspective. The second, of course, was really, I think, the bull versus bear, right? The factors that are positive, the factors that are concerning, and that range from education to the friendshoring slash manufacturing supply chain. And of course, on the other end, we talked about how we're concerned about, obviously, some of the legislation clarity around exit pathing and technology startup, uh, as well as talking a little bit more some of the other dynamics we had. We also talk about the importance of patient capital in terms of making a decision about Vietnam. And we also talk about some of the impacts and hopes for the current anti-corruption campaign. So on that note, thank you so much, Valerie. I look forward to hanging out with you in, in Vietnam. Vietnam this week. Yeah. Uh, and then let's go party, I guess. Yeah. Uh, slash talk business, I guess. Yes, yes. You mentioned something I really like. Like, just, I'm a proud Vietnamese citizen. Like, I have a Vietnamese passport. Like, I'm proud of it. I'm proud being Vietnamese. There's so much history in the country. We, as Vietnamese, we go through so much pain and history in the past, so many wars, but we're still standing here protecting our country. So just be proud and take ownership of that identity. That's my message to a lot of diaspora overseas Vietnamese right now. Yeah, can't wait to see you in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah. See you, Valerie. See you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.